I'll be reading now from 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, and then verses 17 to 18. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father. For Hiram was ever a lover of David. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side, until the Lord put him under the soles of his feet, put them under the soles of his feet. And now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. Now therefore, command thou that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with thy servants, and unto thee will I give hire for thy servants according to all that thou shalt appoint. For thou knowest that there is not among us any that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. And it came to pass, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the things which thou sentest to me for, and I will do all thy desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon unto the sea, and I will convey them by sea in floats unto the place that thou shalt appoint me, and will cause them to be discharged there. And thou shalt receive them, and thou shalt accomplish my desire in giving food for my household. So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 measures of wheat for food to his household, and 20,000 at 20 measures of pure oil, thus gave Solomon to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and they, made, and they too made a league together. Verse 17. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones, and huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. And Solomon's, builder, and Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the stone quarries, so they, so they prepared timber and stones to build the house. You may be seated. The, the trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Those verses from Psalm 104 and Psalm 29. You are familiar, I think. You are somewhat familiar, I think, with mountains, biblical mountains like Moriah and Carmel and Horeb. And you might even remember that the last three sermons that I preached here were 
on those subjects and things that happened on those mountain peaks. Did you know that there's a mountain named Mount Lebanon? You can read about that in Judges 3.3 where the Bible mentions Mount Lebanon and also a number of places in Scripture that talks about the forest of Lebanon. And Wikipedia Encyclopedia talks about that and I, I quote from there, the Mount Lebanon range extends along the entire country for about 110 miles parallel to the Mediterranean Sea. The, uh, Mount Lebanon in modern day nation of Lebanon. And so the title for the sermon today is What's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon? What's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon? And I remind you that we had seen, had looked as what's to be seen, what's to be decided, what's to be corrected in sermons gone by. And so hopefully as we go along here, you can answer the question in the title of the sermon, what's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon? Does the term cedars of Lebanon come to mind? And you might have noticed that the verses in Psalms that I read talked about the cedars of Lebanon. That term is used over 70 times in Scripture. And someone has said, someone from over in that part of the world, whose name I can't pronounce, said that the cedar forests of Lebanon enjoy the unique distinction as the oldest documented forests in history. The cedar, uh, the forests of Lebanon, where the cedars of Lebanon were, are, were located and still are today, was very prominent and well known in Bible times. Um, those cedars were much in demand because of three reasons especially. Number one, their aroma. They're very sweet, good-smelling trees. And I think that maybe you have, some of you have cedar chests at home or maybe even a cedar closet. We understand how that cedar trees smell, make things smell good. Not only that, but they are very durable. Cedar trees are good and strong, and aren't apt to decay, durable. And thirdly, I understand that they are insect-proof. So, in the ancient world, in Bible times, as well as today, cedar trees were valuable and sought after, especially the good ones that were found in Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon often used, especially in that day, to make grand buildings and for ships, we're told. And so today, now, 3,000 years after the events of First Kings 5, cedar trees are something that still defines Lebanon, that area, and still defines the nation, the modern-day nation of Lebanon. Uh, the Lebanese flag 
has a red strip at the top and a red strip at the bottom, and in the middle is a white field, and in that field, guess what all is there in the flag? It's a, Lebanon, um, a cedar tree, and that's the flag. Red strip, red strip, white field, and a cedar tree. There are various governmental agencies that have cedar trees in their logo, we're told, and their currency over there in Lebanon features cedar trees. The locals in that area, in their language, still today call these cedar trees the cedars of the Lord. So let's look at first, with that backdrop, let's look at 1 Kings again, 1 Kings 5. And as we talk about and notice different things in 1 Kings 5, in the chapter that Dave just read, I, w I would hope that you would attempt to answer the question, what's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon? Uh, especially, the, the, uh, it's a personal question for you and for me. What's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon? So as we go through, go along here, keep that question in mind. See if you can answer that question. The first thing that I would like to notice and look at in 1 Kings 5 is found in verses 3 and 4, and that is the idea, the truth of providence. Do you know what providence means? Providence is something that is provided. God in his providence is shown here. God had provided for David strength and wisdom to fight God's enemies and to defeat God's enemies. God had provided for David uh, victory. In, he was a man of war. God had provided for him in all of that safety, strength, wisdom, so that he could defeat his enemies. God had also, along that line, provided a commander, in, or a commander of the army, Joab, who was a military genius. He, God had also provided 30 mighty men that were around David. Um, and you can read about that in 2 Samuel 23, which I've just always or long thought is a very fascinating chapter. God had also provided for David uh, very unlikely companions and assistants and aides. And 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, talks about how that there was men, when David was running from Saul, there were various men that gathered to him. And these men were the Bible says, either in distress or in debt or discontented. Interesting, I think. God had provided these men and they became mighty men of valor. And I think that, his, that little personal army grew to maybe 600 people. Providence. God had provided all of that for David so that there could be victory over God's enemies. 
as a result of all those conflicts and all that fighting for the Lord and all those victories that were won, after that, well, let me start again. One of the reasons that Solomon was able to live in such a blessed time, notice that those terms in verse 4, God hath given me rest on every side. What a pleasant situation. So that there is neither adversary nor evil concurrent, so that there's, I don't have any enemies coming up against me, and not only that, I don't have any bad situations to deal with. No floods, no hailstorms, no accidents. Life is just right good. At least part of the reason I believe that God provided so wondrously for Solomon is because of David's faithfulness in what God had provided for him in years earlier. So here was unparalleled peace, unparalleled prosperity. And I just asked the think about and ask you, where are you? Are you in the peace and prosperity part, or is your life more full of conflict? Let's think about that just a little bit. David, the life of David, I think it speaks of and pictures our present life here on earth, where we are fighting the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're fighting every day. It's a, time, it's a battlefield and not a playground, as has often been said. David pictures our present pilgrimage here in this world. And Solomon and his, the situation that he found himself here in 1 Kings 5 speaks of the next world the better place, heaven, our real permanent home. The, or some would also say that that speaks of the millennium, but, and that could be true. I kind of like to think of it as a picture of heaven. Our life is that way. Our pilgrimage is that way. Sometimes we're in the David situation and sometimes we're in the Solomon era. It seems like oftentimes we are sailing through bloody seas, but sometimes we are carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease, as that song speaks about. Um, one reason that I think that Solomon had it so easy was because David had it so hard. When I have it easy in life, I like to think that it could be at least in part because maybe my parents or ancestors faithfully served through their hard times. When I'm in the midst of affliction and suffering, it's helpful to think that maybe if I by God's grace, carry on faithfully here, I can make it easier for my posterity. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, perhaps. 
So we're thinking about the providence of God, how God provided for David, and in a different way he provided for Solomon. But he provided, and God provides for you, and God provides for me in exactly the right and good way. All of that is for our good, and it's for his glory, ultimately. Yeah, the Bible is clear. Our good God knows exactly what's best for us and provides exactly what's best for us. The Bible is clear that way. You could look at 1 Corinthians 12, you could look at Hebrews 12, and you could look at various other places to notice again how that God brings what is good into our life. What's for our good, it's for his glory. The providence of God. Just a faint little picture here in 1 Kings 5. Looking then at verses 5 and 6, I think I see there, and do you see it? The promise. The reason that Solomon wanted, one of the reasons that Solomon wanted to build the house of God, wanted to build a temple for his God, was because God had promised Solomon's dad that Solomon could do that and would do that. As the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build a house unto my name. The promise. It was because of the promise of God. Solomon knew and was motivated by God's promise that had been given to Solomon's dad, David. I'm thinking about the song, Standing on the Promises. Yes, we do, as Christians here today in this age, we stand on the promises, do we not? Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ my Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. Thank God that we can stand on his promises. They are firm and faithful in every way and to every detail. We can stand on what God says here. Thank God for that. And I asked the question, how can I, how can you know how to stand? And how can you and I know where to stand if we don't know God's word? If we, if we don't know the promises? So that brings us to God's word and the promises that are here, the many, many wonderful promises for God's people. But we can't stand unless we read the Bible and study the Bible and meditate on the Bible and maybe even memorize scripture. And there's couple other things that are so necessary for us to be able to stand on God's promises besides reading and studying and meditating and memorizing and they are to obey God's word 
And then I think the ultimate in this life, in our relationship with the Bible, is not only to read and not only to study and not only to meditate on and not only to memorize and not only to obey, but there's something else, and that's to love God's Word. Sounds like the kind of teaching that we're having in Sunday school these days in Psalm 119, doesn't it? Last week, we were having instruction class up at Living Hope in Perry County, and we were talking about this very subject, that of reading and studying God's Word. And that is just so necessary for you young men and ladies who are, don't have an awful lot of experience in life and are somewhat and largely untrained as of yet. All of this is reading, studying, meditating, memorizing, obeying, loving God's Word. And having said that, for you older, stronger, seasoned saints, the same thing is exactly true. And if you find yourself kind of between the young and the old, kind of in middle age, you know, Again, that is exactly the case. May we be the kind of people, may we be the kind of church that continues to read the Bible and study God's Word and meditates on the precious promises and precepts and is willing and and disciplined to memorize portions of God's Word, maybe even large portions of God's Word, to obey God's Word, and to love it with all of our hearts. The promise. Along with that, let me just say that it is such a wonderful, wonderful privilege of ours of us here today, that we get to have the Bible in our own language, in a language that we can read and we can understand. There have been many of God's people that through the ages, through the centuries, that didn't have that privilege. And there was people like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale and others who sailed through bloody seas to provide that for us today. Thank God for God's word in a language that we can understand. Let's go to verse 7. And notice there, after looking at the promise, after looking at the providence and then the promise, let's look at the praise that is offered in verse 7. I think you see it there. I'm making an assumption here. My assumption is that it was a lot because of David's witness of the Lord to his friend Hiram that Hiram that had borne fruit and that Hiram is able to say blessed be the Lord today. Blessed be the Lord this day. Blessed be the Lord. David was a man who had committed adultery and murder and was the dad of a dysfunctional family. And with all of that, apparently he had faithfully 
shown the truth of the one true God to his friend Hiram. And I don't say that to condone sin or to say that that is not serious because sin of any kind is always serious and a tremendous affront to the God of heaven and earth. I don't say that to... But, but to offer encouragement to those of us who have kind of a checkered past. Just because we've made mistakes and have sinned, when we repent and when we come to the Lord, the Lord can make good things from our life before the Lord. Just because we have failed doesn't say that we can't be useful in the work of God's kingdom. Hiram wasn't a Jew, you know. He wasn't of the house of Israel. He was a Gentile. He was born undone and untaught. He was born ungodly and unconverted, just like all other Gentiles, including us here today, and every human for that matter. Hiram was just like us. We're just like Hiram. But Hiram was able, am I saying it right, was, had become a Christian somehow? Um, it looks like that to me, although we can't prove that, of course. He apparently had joined the group of Gentile dogs that are mentioned in the Old Testament of becoming believers in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the word God. And I'm thinking, are you thinking with me of other Gentiles who ex expressed their belief in the Lord, in the, or we think must have? I'm thinking of people like uh, Naaman, remember? Naaman the Syrian. I'm thinking of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a, of Babylon. I'm thinking of Ruth and Rahab and... Azanath, probably, and the Queen of Sheba, and you could add others to that list. Gentiles who had been born and grew up in situations of ungodliness and worse, and had no spiritual blessings, but because of their adherence to the God of Israel and following what they knew the Lord brought them to the, the stage of being believers in the one true God. Now don't hold me to this just too awfully hard of course but if when we get to heaven we'd, I'd have a chance to converse with Hiram and just ask him a couple questions or maybe a few more than a couple and wouldn't it be wonderful to learn more of his journey of coming to faith? The praise that he offers. Blessed be the Lord this day. And as I look across the audience here, no matter what our situation is in life, just now, we all can echo this. Blessed be the Lord this day. Let's think just a little bit about verse 9. 
and 10 and 11, perhaps. That was quite an undertaking that these kings agreed to. What a project. And we know that the building of the temple took seven years. Hiram's part was to have his men cut down the trees in Lebanon, I guess drag them down to the Mediterranean Sea, which looks to me like that might have been 20 or 30 miles, and then float them downstream or float them along the edge of the Mediterranean down south. And you should check for me, but it looks like it could be up to 200 miles. Maybe not quite that, maybe not that far, um, but it was a good distance, more than just a mile or two. And then from there, Solomon and his men, Solomon's men, the Israelites, would take the logs out of the water, drag them up to Jerusalem, which is probably about 40 miles. Um, I think, well, basically it was uphill, but probably there was hills and valleys in between. Lots of good, hard work included in this effort to build a temple for, for the name of the Lord their God. Do you notice the word peace in verse 12? We've talked about providence and promise and praise. Let's think of peace. And the peace treaty that they signed here, Solomon and Hiram, there was peace between them and they made a league together. Here was a Jewish man and a Gentile man, both kings, and they were at peace politically. They signed a treaty. They made, another way of saying it is, they made a business agreement. The temple, you know, was to be for Jewish worship. But Solomon needed and was willing to ask for Gentile assistance. The temple was for Jewish people, but Solomon got Gentiles to help. Isn't that neat? Can you think of anything else like in New Testament times that in which they were joined together, the Jews and Gentiles? Well, I can, and I think you can. It's called the Church of Christ. This is a beautiful little Old Testament picture of the New Testament church that God built and is building yet today. I'm thinking of verses like Ephesians 2, and maybe you had thought of that chapter. And came and preached peace to you which are far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore we both have access. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The household of God, the church, includes both Jews and Gentiles. Tyre, Hiram was king of Tyre, verse 1. Tyre was a powerful and city-state at that time in history, and they had grown wealthy because of trade. Tyre um, 
The city was right out along the coast on a little piece of land that jutted out into the Mediterranean. And so they had a natural harbor, and they used that to good advantage for trade. Not only that, but they had a natural resource in that area called the Cedars of Lebanon. And between the trade and the cedars, they had grown wealthy and... But one thing that they had very little of was tillable area to grow crops uh, and agriculture. So you see what happens there in verse 11, right? Solomon needs the cedars. And this is Hiram's golden opportunity to get food for his people. So the, the business agreement certainly wasn't just advantageous to Solomon, but to Hiram as well. And 20,000 measures of wheat per year. I couldn't find how many that is. Some, somebody said 100,000 bushel. And somebody else thought that maybe it was up to a million bushel. That doesn't... Anyway, a, a big amount per, per year. And then there was the oil and First Chronicles or Second Chronicles talks about maybe a few other things that First Kings doesn't mention here. Jews and Gentiles working together in the church of God. Jews and Gentiles together in, at peace. The word that we're especially thinking of is the word peace there in verse 12. So today, um, Bill Randall's, from which I got some of these thoughts, said very well, I think, he, he sees in that that the Gentiles bring vigor and creative ideas and numbers into the church. And what is it that the Jews contribute to the church of God? Well, they contribute grain and oil. And Mr. Randalls goes on to explain that his, what he thinks of as grain and oil is how that the Jews provided spiritual blessings that we feast on and feed on. Like what spiritual blessings are, do we have that really come from the Jews? Well, we could make a list. There's the Jewish prophets, and there's the 12 apostles, and there's the Word of God, which is almost completely written by Jewish men. And then there's, of course, the crowning one, the Messiah, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, came through the Jewish race. All of that that we appreciate and enjoy, spiritual blessings come through the Jew. We should forever be grateful to them for all of that. Let's think just a little bit about the proper foundation down in verses 17 to 18. Notice that it talks about great stones, costly stones, and huge stones. 
Great costly stones, the ESV says. Uh, and from what I understand, I wonder if you who have been to Israel can vouch for this. Apparently the foundation of that first temple is still in place and you, you can go down and view that today. And I'm told, correct me afterward if I'm wrong, I'm told that the stones there, the foundation stones, which have been there now for 3,000 years, are as huge as nearly 40 feet long and as heavy as 500 tons. And one would wonder how those ancient workmen were able to hew those stones maybe up in the forests of Lebanon. It looks like that to me from those verses. But how they got those stones in place well, you can do a lot with a fulcrum. You can do a lot with a lever. And I remember just a number of years ago when some of our children, one of our ch children was in fourth grade science, was in fourth grade, and she needed a little bit of help with um, some of those. And so I got into that again and kind of relearned a little bit. And I learned an awful lot that I had either never learned or had forgotten in the meantime in fourth grade science. A proper foundation, this was certainly a proper foundation indeed. These great stones, costly stones, huge stones. Does the church, the church of Jesus Christ, does the church of which Solomon's temple is an Old Testament picture, an Old Testament type, does the church have a proper foundation. Well, you might know about Mena Simons. He lived from 1496 to 1561. And somebody has said of him, and I read this, in one of his later writings, Mena reflects back on those early years. In the opening paragraph, he notes that he, a priest, had never once opened a Bible in his life or in his first two years of pastoring. So, for... If you are children here and are listening, that means that if you have ever gone to Sunday school or if you have ever heard or read uh, any Bible stories, that you know more about the Bible than Mena Simons, who was a priest, knew by the time that he was 30. The wonderful thing about Mena Simons is that eventually... He came to the Lord. He started reading the Bible. He came to the Lord. He became a leader uh, of his time. And you know, don't you, what his favorite verse was in his pilgrimage and his life with the Lord? First uh, Corinthians 3.11. And he would all, when he would write something, he would normally write this first or on the title page. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So my question is, does the church, of which Solomon's temple is just a picture, does the church have a proper foundation? The resounding answer is, indeed, it's none other but the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 says it a little bit different. It says that 
and are built upon the foundation of the prophets, apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Much, much more sure a foundation than Solomon's temple is the church's foundation, Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God for Jesus. So we've looked at those five. Providence and promise and praise and peace and the proper foundation. That brings us back now to the question asked in the title. What's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon? Think about those trees up there on the, mount, on the mountain and be, being cut down through no choice of their own and being dragged for a good ways and then being floated down the water, down the Mediterranean Sea, and then dragged up to Jerusalem. Quite a journey. That that is. And we could say that they, those logs suffered quite a lot in the time that they were a tall, stately tree until they became part of the house of God. Not part of the foundation now, but they were built on top of the foundation, or they were, became part of the building on top of the foundation. Jesus is the, cor- is the foundation and the cornerstone. And think now about what's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon. Well, you are a little bit, just a little bit perhaps, like one of those cedars of Lebanon. And when you suffer for the cause of Christ, or when you suffer, when affliction comes, it's a little bit like being cut down. And maybe sometimes you feel like you're being dragged through the dirt. Or being floated downstream and can barely keep your head above water. What's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon? Well, God knows what he's about when we suffer, when you suffer, and when you're dragged through the dirt. But when we agree to that suffering and are just all right with what the Lord brings in our life, then you can make a contribution to the church of Christ. Remember, the temple is a picture of the church of Christ. And you personally, God made you with particular strengths and abilities that he needs to build up the church. And so maybe you're only one little log and don't make much difference in the grand scheme of the building. But yes, you do make a difference because... God has made you just perfectly to fit in in the church of Christ. So in closing, I ask, are you willing to contribute to the church of God? You, as one of those cedar trees, are you willing to contribute to the church of God and his ministry and his mission here on earth in this age? Well, for you to be willing to contribute, it will take some suffering, but it will be worth it all. 
what's to be contributed on Mount Lebanon? Hopefully the answer from your heart, from our hearts together, is that yes, we're willing to contribute what we can, even though it brings suffering and pain, for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you kneel with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your provisions for us. Thank you that we can have peace through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we can be, as the Church of Christ, one new man, like the book of Ephesians talks about. One new man, so making peace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of him that we can be saved, that we can be a part of the Church of Christ, that we can look forward to heaven. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that our contributions to the work of the kingdom of Christ, the church of Christ here in this age, that our contribution, no matter how small it might be, can be gladly done for the cause of the church of Christ, for the name of Christ, and that we, working together, can elevate the God's program here on this earth until you come for us. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word, Heavenly Father. Thank you that we have it so freely and that we have it in our own language. And thank you for all your blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In his name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.